0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Between the shadows of reality and the fringe of our own fears lurks a world of monsters. Strange creatures and frightening phantoms who test the very boundaries of our science and superstition. It's a realm of mystery and legend. A place of fact and fear. This is Monstro Bizarro. past the cemetery when I heard a high-pitched noise. Then I saw something gray moving slowly across the road. It wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before. It was inhuman. It terrified me. I've never believed in anything like this. Now I'm sure that there is something evil lurking in Highgate. On a crisp winter night, a crowd of people armed with crude wooden stakes and shovels converged at the entrance to Highgate Cemetery, located on the north side of London, England. Authorities had set up security patrols and blockades in an attempt to curtail the throng of would-be vampire hunters who were responding to the building hysteria of an alleged vampire lurking on the grounds. Just weeks before, The Hampstead and Highgate Express newspapers had circulated the news of vampire sightings and fox killings, which had taken place in the Erie Cemetery on multiple occasions. The police efforts ultimately failed to keep out the crowd, who managed to evade them and enter the grounds on their deadly mission. But good intentions don't always translate to fearless endeavors. Within a short time, the majority of stake-wielding citizens fled from the cemetery after spotting something, quote, crawling in the dark. The hunters and police were not acting on unfounded rumors. They were acting on tips from actual witnesses who claimed to have seen something that suggested a vampiric entity was living, or perhaps undead living, within the cemetery and perhaps feeding on foxes whose lifeless bodies were found with deep lacerations to the throat. In these reports, witnesses described a quote, most unusual form that just seemed to glide across the path, a pale shadowy figure. Some claim to have seen a tall man who walked across a road and disappeared through a wall into the cemetery. Some saw a silent, humanoid figure moving among the gravestones. One man, who had taken an interest in the spooky reports, said he and his fiance observed a dark shape moving in the cemetery directly in front of them. And on another occasion, they saw something standing behind the iron railings of the gate, looking at them with an expression of, quote, horror. A teenager named Jacqueline Beckwith, who lived close to the cemetery, feared that the thing had entered her room one night. She awoke with something cold and clammy clutching her hand, causing it to go numb. She yanked her hand away and laid there in terror, not bearing to look at whatever was there, until she finally fell back asleep. The next morning she was horrified to find tears in the flesh where she had forced her hand free. Was a vampire loose in London? Are vampires even real? Tales of vampires are as old as humankind, and you might think these sort of cases universally date back hundreds of years. However, this was 1970, and the Highgate vampire, for many was very real. I bid you welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Count Lyle. And on this episode of Monstro Bizarro, we'll be taking a shadowy dive into the eerie tales of real-life vampires. Everyone is familiar with these alleged creatures from movies and books, But you may be surprised to find some well-documented cases, even in modern times, that blur the lines between what we think we know about such entities and what might be lurking in the darkest corners of our world. The Highgate Vampire is a good example of a modern case where average, everyday people believed they had seen something otherworldly. Something that was reminiscent of what we might call a vampire. The case was essentially fueled by two men who became the focal point for the news. The first was David Farrant, a member of the British Psychic and Occult Society. His group began to receive reports of the strange entity in March of 1969, and it was Farrant who eventually notified the press. He was hesitant to label the mysterious being a vampire, but it was something that could not be avoided given the sightings, dead animals, and other circumstances. The second spokesman was Sean Manchester, a self-proclaimed exorcist, vampire hunter, and bishop of the Old Catholic Church. It was his enthusiastic appearance on a television news program that resulted in the throng of stake-wielding citizens invading the cemetery. But if his fervor was in question, there was still the testimonies of citizens who had seen something really bizarre. A one Anthony Robinson went on record with the London Evening News, saying, I walked past the place and heard a high-pitched noise. Then I saw something gray moving slowly across the road. It terrified me. I've never believed in anything like this. Now I'm sure there's something evil lurking in Highgate. Reports of the vampire waned through the summer of 1970, but the case was quickly brought back to life in August when two schoolgirls discovered the 100-year-old corpse of a woman who had been dragged from her coffin, decapitated, staked through the heart and left in the middle of a pathway in the cemetery. The gruesome incident sparked a new investigation by police and a resurgence in vampire sightings. One woman said the alleged creature had even attacked her and threw her to the ground. She described it as a tall, pallid figure cloaked in black. The very image of a vampire. David Ferrant and Shawn Manchester continued to debate and investigate the incidents and even attempted to solve it using self-styled psychic abilities. However, the vampire sightings eventually died off and a spooky, unsolved mystery remained in its wake. Regardless of what might have actually been lurking in that cemetery, it's amazing that a vampire hunt such as this was taking place in a modern city in modern times. One of the most well-documented cases of a so-called vampire is that of Arnold Peol. Arnold was a Serbian soldier who lived in a small village near Belgrade, which was under Austrian control in the early 1700s. Around 1725, he returned from military service bought some land, built a home, and married a local girl. According to reports, Arnold told several friends and family members that he felt he had been plagued by a vampire while in Kosovo, but he had managed to cure himself by eating soil from the vampire's grave and smearing himself with his blood. A short time later, Arnold fell from a hay wagon while working He suffered internal injuries which resulted in his death. A funeral service was held and he was buried in the town cemetery. A month later, odd reports began to circulate from villagers who claimed to have seen Arnold roaming around, or worse, lurking in their homes. The locals didn't pay much heed to the bizarre reports until four people who claimed to have seen the dead man in their homes died suddenly without a clear cause. Concerned, the locals decided it would be a good idea to exhume Arnold's body and have a look. Five men, including two surgeons and a priest, proceeded to dig up the grave and open the coffin. Inside, they found Arnold's corpse to be in perfect condition without any signs of decomposition whatsoever. Worse, the corpse appeared to be still alive in some terrible way by evidence of fresh blood. According to the story, documented by two Austrian military doctors, Glaser and Fluchinger, quote, fresh blood had flowed from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. The shirt, the covering, and the coffin were completely bloody, and the old nails on his hands and feet along with the skin had fallen off and that new ones had grown. There could be only one explanation. Arnold Pill had become a vampire. They fashioned a stake and proceeded to pound it through the heart of the corpse to ensure that he could no longer haunt the town. As they did, the corpse let out a terrible shriek as if it were alive and fresh blood spilled from the wound. After that, they cut off the head and burned the body. They also disinterred Arnold's four supposed victims and performed the same procedure. The strange sightings and deaths stopped, so they were confident that they had ended the vampire's reign of terror. However, five years later, in the winter of 1731, a new epidemic occurred. 17 people died over the course of three months many of them in just a few days without any prior illness. The victims complained of odd stabbing wounds in the side, followed by pain. Rumors circulated that two of the deceased had potentially become vampires by eating the meat of sheep that had been infected by the previous vampire case. One of the victims, named Stanojaka, had gone to bed healthy 15 days previous but had woken up at midnight in a terrible fear and cried that she had been throttled by the living corpse of Milia, who had been the first to die. The matter was so bizarre, a group of Austrian military officials was dispatched to the town to investigate. They eventually opened the graves of the deceased and found that while some of the corpses had decomposed in a normal fashion, 12 had not. These appeared to be quite fresh-looking and completely devoid of decay, as if they were somehow living, yet dead. According to the surprisingly well-documented investigation notes, their chests and, in some cases, other organs were filled with fresh, rather than coagulated blood, and their skin red and vivid. One even looked more healthy than she had been in life. In response to these vampiric conditions, the bodies were removed, their heads cut off, and then burned. The ashes were thrown into the West Morava River. Investigators concluded that these new vampires may have eaten the meat of several livestock that Arnold Paol had infected during his original vampire reign. It seemed like a stretch, but the doctors had no other explanation. Medical science was in its infancy at the time, so they did not understand the full scope of human decay, so there is much room for error and interpretation. But could there have been something extraordinary going on that has since influenced our views and knowledge of vampirism? Serbia has a deep history of vampire tales dating back even further than the Arnold Paol case. One of the most famous of these tales has essentially become folklore. As the story goes, a man named Saba Sabanovic lived in an old water mill outside a small village. The locals became wary of Saba when millers who came to visit his mill began to go missing. The details are thin, but eventually the locals came to the conclusion that Saba was literally living off the blood drained from these men. The vampire aspect can certainly be debated, but the watermill does indeed exist. It's owned by a family named Jagodic. The family has admittedly never repaired the mill for fear that Saba might take offense and return to seek his vengeance. The watermill collapsed in 2012, but that has not eased the fears of the locals. They believe the vampire may now be free to roam the land in search of new victims. I hope I'm pronouncing these Serbian names correctly. I'm doing my best here. of the dead should sally forth from their graves and should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living and again return to the tomb which of its own accord spontaneously open to receive them frequent examples occurring in our own times suffice to establish this fact to the truth of which There is abundant testimony. Those are the words of the medieval writer William de Newburgh. In his 12th century book of English history, or Historia Rerum Angelicarum, he recorded early tales having to do with vampire-like creatures. At the time, the term vampire was not yet a part of the language, so he refers to the perpetrator as a revenant a word describing a person who has supposedly returned from the dead. It's derived from the old French word revenant, meaning returning. In his book, Newburgh relates the tale of the Ainwick Castle creature. As the story goes, a sinful man from Yorkshire escaped the law and came to Ainwick Castle in northern England because he knew the owner, the lord of the castle. There, he continued his wicked ways and eventually married a local woman. After hearing rumors that she was cheating on him with another man, he hid on one of the rooftops to see for himself. When he saw her with the other man, he was so unnerved he fell to the ground. The man eventually succumbed to internal injuries and died. Despite his evil ways, he was given a standard Christian burial but that, apparently, could not confine his evil spirit. A short time later, he was reportedly seen roaming the streets of the local village after dark. According to Newburgh, wherever this revenant went, he left behind a horrible, fetid stench that affected every household in town. A sort of plague broke out in the wake. Concerned and fearful, Two local men waited until they saw the Revenant walking about at night and followed him back to his grave. When the sun had risen and he was presumed to be resting, they opened the grave. The corpse within was apparently gorged and swollen with a reddish hue and puffed cheeks. Its shroud was torn and dirty, far from the clean condition in which he was originally buried. They struck the corpse with a sharp spade. Fresh blood gushed forth, confirming their worst suspicions that the thing had indeed been feeding on people or animals as it walked the night. They promptly dragged the body to the outskirts of town where they burned it to ashes. Several of the townsfolk were there to see the event, confirming in everyone's mind that this dead man was evil and its corpse had been properly destroyed. Sightings of the undead man were said to have stopped after that. to cover the topic of vampires without discussing the man known as Vlad the Impaler. Due to his modern association with the most famous of vampires, Dracula, he is probably the best known of the rumored real-life vampires. But was Vlad actually a vampire, or even considered by any of his contemporaries to be a vampire? Vlad was a Romanian born in the state of Wallachia around 1431. He was the son of a celebrated military man by the name of Vlad II Dracul. Vlad, the son, eventually took the last name Dracula, which meant son of Dracul. The Wallachian word Dracul was derived from the Latin term Draco, meaning dragon. Vlad Dracula, or Vlad Tepish as he is more commonly known in Romanian history, eventually became ruler of Wallachia, which is now part of modern-day Romania. As a ruthless soldier and ruler who placed his country and his duties above all else, he gained a notorious reputation due to the psychotic brutality he employed against his enemies, including torture, mutilation, and mass murder in ways I won't even get into right now. He eventually earned the nickname The Impaler due to his penchant for driving wooden stakes through the bodies of captured enemies and leaving them to die a slow and painful death exposed to the elements. During his campaign against the Ottoman invaders in 1462, Vlad reportedly had as many as 20,000 victims, men, women, and children, impaled on the banks of the Danube. There are many sources that documented the horrors of Vlad Tepes. These included Romanian chronicles and German pamphlets that described his various methods of military murder in detail. A pamphlet, printed in Nuremberg in 1499, included a woodcut illustration depicting Vlad eating a meal while impaled victims were dying all around him. This along with stories that he dipped his bread in the blood of his enemies before eating it, played strongly into the transformation of Vlad from man to a living vampire. Vlad held the position of ruler, or voivode, three different times, about seven years total. He was killed about two months into his third reign, sometime around December 1476. Though he was a horrible and cruel leader, he had been celebrated as a hero in parts of Romania, and his atrocities preserved in the historical record. Some of these sources are perhaps biased and sensational, but at the very least this guy was indeed one of the most brutal and bloodthirsty humans to have ever lived. The whereabouts of his remains is the subject of many rumors and searches, but to this day no one really knows was he a vampire or at the very least the inspiration for the iconic character of dracula in bram stoker's 1897 novel of the same name it's become a widespread belief that stoker based his character on the gruesome life of vlad tepish however this was not the case according to dr elizabeth miller author and foremost authority on the subject of Dracula. Stoker did not base the character of Dracula on Vlad as evidenced by his own notes. Stoker's inspiration for the novel came from earlier vampire literature and information he had come across detailing vampire beliefs in Transylvania. Only the name Dracula was taken from Vlad. Stoker came across it in a book he was researching entitled An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, 1820. The book has a short section on Vlad Dracula. Within these pages, Stoker noticed a footnote which stated that Dracula in the Wallachian language means devil. That's not truly accurate, but that's what Stoker saw and copied into his own notes. He was originally going to call his vampire Count Vampir, but changed it. Count Dracula. This change is recorded in Stoker's own notes for Dracula, which are located at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. As far as being a real vampire, there are no documents or evidence that anyone believed or even thought of Vlad Tepish as one of these undead creatures. He certainly has an affinity for blood and even lived in a castle, but was purely a living man albeit a horrifying
1: one.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Not all vampire tales are confined to Europe. Rumored creatures, or at least humans, who commit vampire-like acts or become involved in vampire hysteria exist in other countries, even in the United States. One of these reads like a Halloween legend, yet it was true. In the late 1800s, the family of George Brown was living in Exeter, Rhode Island, just as tuberculosis, better known as consumption, was sweeping across New England. George managed to avoid it, But fate struck the rest of his family as the disease crept into their lungs and drained the life from them. His wife, Mary, suffered and died in 1882, his 20-year-old daughter, Mary Olive, in 1883, and his 19-year-old daughter, Mercy Lena Brown, thereafter. His son, Edwin Brown, had also been stricken with the illness, but thus far held on. Tuberculosis was not uncommon. But at the time, doctors had yet to figure out what caused it and how it could be cured. Since doctors were unable to explain the wave of sickness that had come over the Brown family, the relatives sought answers in other places, mainly in the age-old belief of the undead. Convinced that one of Edwin's family members was possibly a vampire sucking the life force from him, They reasoned that they should dig up some graves to investigate. The father, George Brown, was reluctant to embrace the vampire theory, but eventually came around and granted permission to exhume his family's bodies. On March 17, 1892, several relatives' and neighbors went to the Chestnut Hill Cemetery behind the town's church and began digging up the graves of Mary Brown and Mary Olive Brown. When they unearthed the caskets and opened the lids, their corpses were a pile of bones. Undeterred, they began digging up the remains of Mercy Brown, who had died a mere eight weeks earlier. When the lid was lifted from Mercy's coffin, her body was laying on its side as if it had moved. Her face appeared flush, and there was blood in her heart and in her veins. Dr. Harold Metcalf, who was present, assured the panicked townsfolk that the lack of decomposition was consistent with someone who had died only two months ago. The townsfolk, however, disagreed, pointing to the presence of fresh blood in Mercy's heart. She was, to them, one of the undead. The group constructed a bonfire on a pile of nearby rocks, cut out Mercy's heart and lungs, and proceeded to burn them. Then they went to Edwin Brown's house with the ashes of his dead sister's heart and mixed them with water. Edwin consumed the concoction, hoping it would cure his illness. However, the tuberculosis continued to consume him and he died two months later on May 2nd, 1892, in a final cough of blood. It sounds crazy, but this was not the first time the folk remedy of burning the organs of a suspected vampire and mixing the ashes into an elixir had been tried in Rhode Island. In 1799, the townspeople of Exeter exhumed the body of Sarah Tillinghast, suspecting her of being a vampire. According to author Diana Ross McCain, There were 18 documented cases of such vampire remedy throughout New England in the 18th and 19th centuries. In this case, natural illness was surely the root cause of the deaths as opposed to vampirism. But the fact that people living in New England even as late as the 1800s were fearful gave credence to the fact that vampire lore had been carried to the new world. In 1966, the whaling boat known as the Atlantic creaked its way from Boston towards the Indian Ocean in search of the valuable commodity of whale fat. Among the 30-some-odd crew members was a Portuguese sailor who called himself James Brown. He was a swarthy, rugged sort of seaman who served as the ship's cook. The whaling missions on which the Atlantic embarked were often long and difficult and only the most seaworthy or wildly adventurous men dared to join its crew. James Brown seemed to be one of these, though perhaps his crewmates felt he was a bit odd or even malevolent. In the course of the journey, the captain became aware of the fact that two of his crew had inexplicably disappeared. They were nowhere to be found on deck or within the dank hull of the vessel. During the investigation, the captain, or one of the other searchers, entered the kitchen area. To their horror, Brown was hunched over the body of one of the missing men in the act of sucking his blood. The blood-stained madman was pulled from the body and detained while a more thorough search of his quarters were undertaken. The captain was horrified to find the body of the second missing crewman, drained of its blood and hidden away. Brown was promptly returned to Boston where he was convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged for his apparent vampiric behavior. While this might sound like a fanciful legend, James Brown definitely existed and the case was documented. The November 4th, 1892 edition of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle ran the headline, A Human Vampire, and a murderer. The article summarized the details of the horrific crime which took place years earlier, noting the similarities to a vampire. If there is any question to the validity of the newspaper tale, at least in terms of being a real person and a real case, then we need only refer to the papers of the District of Massachusetts Circuit Court, which state that the sentence of death levied on Mr. James Brown was commuted to life in prison by none other than Andrew Johnson, the current President of the United States. Mr. Brown remained in prison thereafter, where he was eventually accused of killing two more men. It is unclear just why the President intervened in the case, as the document only states that there were, quote, good and sufficient reasons. It's certainly doubtful that Brown was an actual vampire but perhaps he believed himself to be one. It is interesting to note that vampires in the Portuguese tradition are not believed to be reanimated corpses, but instead blood-sucking female witches called Bruxa that take the form of birds. Perhaps Brown was deranged or simply looking for an alternate form of nourishment while on a long sea journey. Coincidentally, Bram Stoker's Dracula journeyed to England on a ship called the Demeter. In the course of the journey, the titular vampire fed on the crew members. As usual, truth can truly rival fiction. Another vampire story, one that treads somewhere between light and shadow, creepypasta and folklore, dates back to the early 1900s in Louisiana. It involves a man named Augusta Delagrange, who was supposedly a serial killing vampire responsible for the disappearances of several people in New Orleans. The facts are thin and mostly originating from a person selling a human heart and a wooden stake on the Internet. You know, average stuff. The item's description included a long version of the Delagrange case. According to the story... Delagrange was an extremely odd man who lived in the French Quarter section of New Orleans. He was tall and gaunt, always dressed in black, and was coincidentally never seen during daylight hours. By anyone. He befriended many local prostitutes, pimps, gamblers, and other folks of questionable pursuits which could be seen associated with him in the seedier parts of town in the dark of night. In 1905, however, his friends began to turn up dead, murdered in gruesome ways. They were butchered and cut up, though virtually no trace of blood could be found in or around the bodies. It appeared as though the blood had been drained before the heinous butchery was carried out. Police began to suspect Delagrange, so they set up surveillance. Oddly enough, they never saw him during the day, only at night. The incidents drew the attention of a local Catholic priest who happened to be friends with a local Voodoo priest. The two men believed Delagrange might be some kind of, quote, demonic entity and therefore should be eliminated. The priests set out to find where Delagrange was hiding, but it was no easy task. Finally, after a year, they found him sleeping in a coffin. They promptly drove a stake through his heart as he literally crumbled to dust as if he were a rotten corpse. Is this story true? The documented records were supposedly lost during one of New Orleans' devastating hurricanes, so perhaps we will never know. A story that does have documentation, albeit sparse, is that of the Defiance Vampire. According to an article published by the Crescent News on May 17, 1968, citizens had apparently seen a, quote, vampire stalking the areas around Canal Road in the town of Defiance, Ohio. The vampire was described as being of average height and weight, with pale skin and a pure white face. He was wearing dark clothes and a black cape. Rumors of the sightings had been circulating around town for some time before they finally made it to the sheriff's office. The authorities were not sure what to make of it, but were definitely concerned when they learned that a well-meaning citizen had attempted to shoot the vampire in the head. The vampire, however, was unfazed and was apparently able to move very quickly despite being somewhat crippled. Two youths had reportedly also hit him in the legs with a log chain. Sheriff Doug Ziegler told a journalist that his men had attempted to investigate the case, but were unable to locate either the vampire or the person who had supposedly shot him, or it. Ziegler said that what investigation his officers had been able to undertake was hampered by onlookers. Residents of Defiance were notified that, quote, trespassing charges will be filed against anyone on their property claiming to be looking for a ghoul. Unfortunately, no vampire or ghouls turned up, and the news went cold as a crypt. However, Defiance Ohio shall not disappoint when it comes to living movie monsters. Four years after the shadowy vampire was allegedly running amok in Defiance, the city was faced with yet another terrifying menace, this time a werewolf. The Crescent City News, Wednesday, August 2nd, 1972. Defiance police, possibly armed with silver bullets and sharpened stakes, are on the lookout for a wolf man, who on three occasions has accosted persons near the North Folk and Western Railroad tracks in the vicinity of Fifth Street, and Swift and & Co. Two of the incidents occurred last week, and one last night. The attacks have occurred during the early morning hours, just before sunrise. According to the Defiance Police Department, one man was attacked with a 2x4, however managed to get away from the assailant. He, she, or it is described as very tall with some kind of animal head. Police Chief Don F. Beckler said today that if anyone sees the subject, they should not attempt to apprehend it, but call the department immediately. The alleged werewolf was mostly seen in and around the railroad tracks and in downtown defiance over the course of a week. A rail worker said he was switching trains when the thing, if you will, approached him from behind. He saw its hairy feet and before he could react, the culprit hit him with a piece of lumber. It then ran into some nearby trees. The hirsute werewolf was seen on another night by yet another train crewman and a motorist said he saw it run in front of his car at about 4 a.m. and then disappear into the shadows. It was described as being six to eight feet tall and walking upright but hairy all over with a wolf-like head some thought it might be a person wearing a mask but the witnesses said it looked animal-like the entity was seen for a period of one week before it too vanished like the vampire whether this was a person playing a prank or some kind of actual paranormal entity it is impossible to know but it's undoubtedly bizarre given that the city had previously been assailed by a vampire I visited Defiance myself several years ago and explored the railway area downtown. It's one of the places that was high on my bucket list as far as famous monster incidents and towns go. I didn't spot any vampires or werewolves, but you can be sure I was paying close attention to the trees and shadowy streets surrounding it as I imagined what it would have been like for those crewmen who saw a wolf-headed entity approach them in the dark, early morning hours. Yes, truth does rival fiction. The toll of the bell from Dracula's castle means it's time to answer some listener mail. I've got a question here from listener William Beasley, which harkens back to a movie and a real-life monster I covered in the previous Boggy Creek episodes of the podcast. William writes, I love the podcast and really look forward to every episode. I'm fairly new to your books and music as I came across your body of work when you were a guest on Joe Bob Briggs' The Last Drive-In TV Show. My question is about Charles B. Pierce, the director. I love his movies, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, The Legend of Boggy Creek, and Boggy Creek 2. I recently saw your Facebook post where you went to visit his grave in Tennessee, and I became intrigued. I've looked up interviews with the man and would like to know if you've had any personal experiences with him. Was he a believer or a skeptic? Unfortunately, I never had the privilege of meeting Charles Pierce, I began doing my research into the Boggy Creek case prior to his death, but before I could complete the process of interviewing people and writing my initial book, The Beast of Boggy Creek, Pierce passed away on March 5, 2010 at the age of 71. It was interesting timing since I was literally working on the book in earnest at the very time he passed away. The book has since gone on to play something of a part in revitalizing the legend and setting in motion some events that eventually led to the remastering of his original film, The Legend of Boggy Creek, when his daughter Pamela finally got the rights and invited me to participate in the process. Without having talked to Charles Pierce directly about his views of the reality of the Boggy Creek or Falk Monster, or even Bigfoot in general, I can't say exactly what his thoughts are. But in conversing at length with Pamela, she indicated that Charles did have an open mind about the possibility of the creature's existence. And I know that he went into the woods with my late friend Smoky Crabtree, and on at least one occasion, they heard what they believed were the howls of one of these creatures. In a 1997 interview with the horror magazine Fangoria, Charles Pierce was asked if he believed in the monster. He stated, I don't know if I believe in it or not, but it sure will make a good movie. He was referring to his initial reaction to the sighting reports of the Falk Monster, which were making newspaper headlines in Texarkana, where he was living at the time. There's no doubt Pierce interacted with a good number of people who claimed to have seen the Falk Monster. And some of these were among what I believe are the most credible of the witnesses. Like myself, I can't imagine Pierce would come away from the project without feeling that something, something very real, may indeed be stalking the woods of Southern Arkansas. Thanks for the question. alleged real-life monsters stalking the woods, graveyards, or city streets, vampires are perhaps the most difficult to reconcile, or at least wrap our heads around. That's because, according to the tradition, they would have to overcome death itself to defy the most impenetrable law of nature to rise again and feed from the very lifeblood of those of us who live. Stories of vampires have been circulating among humankind for as long as we've been sharing stories and even our fears, even before the term vampire was created. But do they exist? Over the years, I've only received a few monster reports wherein the witnesses claim to have seen something that could possibly be interpreted as a vampire. Sightings of shadowy men or beings who bring to mind the image of a vampire, but are not necessarily feasting on blood, or at least not seen in the act. One witness told me he was visiting a Victorian home in Virginia when he and his wife saw a black cloaked figure crawl out of a window and walk into the darkness surrounding the remote property owned by his relative. They were frightened but had to enter regardless so they could use the phone to call police. Inside the house, they found a dead rabbit smeared in blood. It appeared to have been bitten or chewed upon. They got a strange feeling that the man they had seen was a vampire, but had no way of proving such a thing. The police felt it was a burglar who may have gotten a thrill by leaving the dead carcass. The couple was not so sure since nothing was missing from the home. The fact that he was wearing black, followed by the discovery of a bloody animal, invokes an immediate association with our cultural personification of a vampire. But this is purely circumstantial. There are individuals, even living in modern times, who believe that drinking fresh blood, especially human blood, is beneficial or even necessary. These people are not undead, yet they do fit the persona of a vampire in some sense. There are also individuals and groups who identify as vampires and celebrate the Gothic sort of culture surrounding it. My colleague Joseph Laycock, a PhD and professor of religious studies at Texas State University, has explored the topic of these modern vampires in his book, Vampires Today, The Truth About Modern Vampires. According to Laycock, real-life vampires could also be into the stereotypical lifestyle, but looking the part is hardly a requirement. They don't suck blood to be cool. They do it because they believe their health depends on it. My fellow Texan and friend Logan South has been an active participant in vampire culture for many years. According to South, much of the modern-day vampire community is a result of the combination of old vampire blood cults and tabletop role players. It may seem like a strange combination, but that's how the dice has landed, so to speak. South feels that most accounts of modern traditional vampires can be traced back to people in these cults who were imitating vampire legends. New York, New Orleans, and several other major cities all have similar accounts that were later traced back to a larger underground group. Ritual sacrifice, blood consumption, and even the recruitment of their victims by convincing them they, too, had become vampires. A scary notion, regardless of whether these people are undead or simply believe they are vampires. The concept of vampires is a disturbing one because of what they need to continue their existence or what they perceive to need, our blood. Blood is the most powerful representation of our very life force striking crimson red liquid that flows in our veins and keeps us alive, yet can be easily drained from us with a jab of a sharp instrument or two long fangs. It can even be sucked out, speeding up the process. And if another person or vile creature swallows our blood, taking it into their own body, then perhaps they will hold some dominion over our weakened human form if we are allowed to survive. It is this paradox of our fragile life force and the power it can hold over us that has given rise to the collective idea of the powerful black clad aristocrat or hauntingly beautiful woman who embodies the classic image of a vampire. So far science has not confirmed the existence of vampires, at least as we have traditionally defined them, but that doesn't mean they aren't out there in some form. All things are legend, myth, and rumor until confirmed by science. And in this case, it may confirm our worst fears, that even if someone dies, they can still claw their way out of a coffin or a crypt and appear before us in the night shadows, ready to drain our life force and cast us into a purgatory of enslavement, wherein we are neither alive nor dead. So the next time you hear a clicking at your window, don't pull back the curtains. It may not be a simple tree limb in the wind. It might be a human form creature trying to gain entrance. An undead entity who walks the void between light and shadow between sundown and sunrise upon the eternal moors of Monstro Bizarro. For more information about this podcast, my books, my research, or my music, visit LyleBlackburn.com. Thanks to author Andy McGrath for his assistance on this episode. You can check out Andy's books, including Beasts of Britain, on Amazon.com.